Another good morning to you. Thank you for being here, and uh, good morning to uh, those of you who cannot be uh, physically here. We think about you. We long for when we can uh, come together, and so we pray that you would feel more and more comfortable, comfortable enough even to be here Sunday morning. A welcome to all uh, this morning. We're in Mark's Gospel. We've been in Mark's Gospel for a while. Uh, welcome, little theologians. Glad that you guys are here. I'm going to need you to do something quickly. In the next 20, 25 minutes or so, I'm going to ask that you would uh, draw for me a picture of your house being emptied of everything that's inside of it. Everything. Nothing can be left. The whole thing. It's got to be emptied. You've got about 25 minutes. All right, people are easy. People can walk out on their own. But why don't you draw a picture of uh, everything in your house being removed in 20 minutes. Our passage is from Mark chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 22. We are entering a section of Mark's gospel in which he is going to give us a parable after parable. This is the last section before Mark begins with the parables of Jesus. So Mark chapter 3, verse 22 is where we'll begin. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, thank you. You make yourself known. But we are stubborn. And your word, your word will bring about that which it is set out to accomplish. It will not return to you void. And your word is our very life. Your word is a revelation of yourself. O oh, Father, forgive us for taking your word lightly. By your spirit, would you teach us and would you send us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and indeed he may plunder his house. Thus I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at, about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of our Lord. You know, sometimes in Mark's gospel, we can read and read and read, and we forget the setting in which the uh, passage or reading falls in. And it's a big disservice for this particular passage. There's two aspects of the setting that I want to highlight to you. And the first is actually pretty clear, I think. 
that what we're seeing right here in Mark's gospel, beginning at verse 22, is we're seeing an intensification of opposition to Jesus. We know, of course, that's what Mark has been doing uh, over chapter 2, but uh, he starts in verse 6 of chapter 2, and he says some of the scribes are opposed to him. And then he says in, chapter, in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees. And he says in 24, the Pharisees themselves, and also in 3.2. And he says in 3 verse 6, Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with another group of people, Herodians. Again, not friends of Jesus. And in 3 verse 6, things intensify to such a, such a degree that now they're beginning to conspire that they might destroy him. And here we have an intensification. Right in verse 22, it says, scribes who came down from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a seat of power. In fact, it's the most authoritative seat of power. And so here you have uh, these authoritative individuals, these scribes, these attorneys, these uh, interpreters and appliers of the law. And they're coming from the most authoritative city, the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, if you jump forward uh, in Mark's gospel, chapter 8 and chapter 10, you'll see that these scribes who come down from Jerusalem are uh, associated with a high priest. And so you have scribes who are powerful by themselves that come from the city of Jerusalem, which is powerful, and they're connected to the high priest, which, well, is there an earthly power greater than that? So verse 22 represents an intensification of opposition. That's one part of the context. But another part of the context is right before our passage and then at the end of the passage. And that context has to do with a house. It's the location. Some scholars say that what Mark does often is he sandwiches his narrative. He'll say something and then he'll offer a narrative and he'll reference to that original thing that he said. And I think he's doing that in verse 20, which we didn't look at this morning. But in verse 31 and 32, which we did look at, in verse 20, what do we learn about Jesus and his disciples? Jesus, he went home. Home. We don't know what home is, and it may be the home of Peter, but he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they, the 12 disciples, could not even eat. And his family is outside of that house in verse 21, and they're hoping to come into the house that they might seize him because, of course, they think that he's out of his mind and he's going to get into a lot of hot water. But the setting is important in 20 and 21. Jesus, he's surrounded by people inside his house, and there's crowds in that house, and there's crowds outside the house as well. And then look at verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and Mark says that they're standing outside. Jesus seems to still be in that same house, surrounded by people, and then there are people who are outside the house. Crowded house, surrounded by a crowd. Verse 32, someone says to him, "Uh, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. They're outside, they're outside the house. And in verse 32, Jesus says that there's a crowd sitting around him. Now that image... This is the second important image from from the setting. That image of Jesus in a crowded house filled with people, including, perhaps especially so, his 12 disciples. Remember, his disciples were just named in our passage last week. And then that house is surrounded by others that are dying to get in. And the the crowds are so intense that Jesus actually uh, is not able to eat, nor his disciples. Those two pieces of setting you're going to hear throughout this sermon as being very important. 
But what this passage and what this sermon is saying is this, is that Jesus actually disarms the power of sin that he might give life to those who believe. He disarms the power of sin that he might give life to those who believe. And we want to start by asking a question, just looking at verses 22 through 30. And the question is this, who or what is Jesus against? Who or what is Jesus actually against? Now, this is main point one of the sermon, but it's also main point two, because I want to ask this question twice. Who or what is Jesus against? Well, let's dive in. Beginning in verse 22, the, the, a charge is made to Jesus, and the charge comes from the Pharisees, and the charge uh, is uh, that Jesus is somehow in league with Satan. Right? Jesus, he's in league with Satan, And the charge is made three times. In verse 22, the charge is that he is possessed by Beelzebul. He's possessed by Beelzebul. And then also in verse 22, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. It's the same thing, but uttered twice. And then, you know, Mark, he's always sandwiching things. Jump down to verse 30, and you see that you see something very similar. There's another, there's the charge articulated a third time. He has an unclean spirit. So a charge is being made to Jesus, and we're, get, we're beginning to understand what it is that Jesus is actually against, but not quite yet. Let's talk about this word Beelzebul. It's Beelzebul, not Beelzebub. For us, that's just a misprint. That doesn't really matter. But it's actually very significant, because the word Beelzebul, it occurs five times in the Old Testament. And the emphasis of the word Beelzebul is a power that is exercised by a certain domain. It's a power over a house. Uh, So to use the word Beelzebul is to uh, refer to a prince or a ruler who exercises jurisdiction and power over a house. A prince of demons who rules over a house. And if you pay attention here, it may be that the Pharisees are emphasizing some rumor that's going out about Jesus. This Jesus so believed these individuals who come from Jerusalem away from Galilee, which has been the principal location of Jesus' ministry. These Pharisees, they hear this rumor, and the rumor is that this Jesus, he's casting out demons left and right. Now, Jesus is casting out so many demons, he seems to be ransacking the house of the prince of demons, And we're actually told that that part of the reason for the crowds around the house are because Jesus has the power to cast out demons. And then these Pharisees come and they call him Beelzebul, someone who seems to exert this authority over the uh, strongest man, as it were, in that house of demons. So really a way to understand Beelzebul is to understand Beelzebul as the arch ruler of a dynasty of demons and evil spirits. That's how one commentator uh, uh, defines Beelzebul, arch ruler of a dynasty of demons and evil spirits. Well, the Pharisees may be choosing their words very carefully, trying to draw out certain implications. Perhaps they're thinking about legal proceedings down the road, but Jesus in verse 23 clearly understands what they're saying. Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, what you're really saying is you're saying that uh, I am uh, Satan or I have the power of Satan. Jesus, he gets it. They think that he is in league with Satan. Now, let me remind all of us 
that they're making an official charge, that they're not just uh, working off of a hunch. Uh, on the, the, the charge is, comes from, from the highest authorities, and it comes from the, the city, the capital, with the highest authority, and in connection with the high priest, the priest to the highest authority. But keep this in mind as well. The Pharisees are so comfortable with this, this tri-stated charge that it's actually made public. They're not pulling Jesus aside to privately indict him. They're actually making this charge uh, publicly known. And so it's an official charge by official people with all kinds of authority, and it is made public. It's reported by others. That's how we learn about it. It's reported by others. Now, this charge, on the one hand, is really illogical. I mean, it's an audacious charge. I mean, what is this going to look like in a court of law? I mean, how are you going to prove this? It seems as though you're going to have to call upon uh, eyewitnesses who are not necessarily trustworthy, uh, certainly not if they're wicked angels. So on the one hand, the charge is illogical, and I think Jesus is going to capitalize on that, on that and we'll spend some time there. But on the other hand, there's really no option that the Pharisees have. I mean, clearly, uh, they refuse to do what Jesus clearly wants. These men refuse to follow Jesus. They refuse to obey him. They refuse to worship him. Jesus' very first words in his, his own public ministry is in 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the Pharisees will do anything to not do that. And what we need to understand as believers is that this is very much a natural response to the gospel. We are to go out as emissaries of Jesus Christ to proclaim a victory that he has won, and we are to call people to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ, to actually bend their knees, bow before him, worship him as the Son of God and the only Savior for sinners. And we should acknowledge the fact that the world will do anything to avoid believing in him. And you should know that about yourself, that you, left to your own devices, would do anything to not do exactly that, repent and believe. But by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart, you, by God's grace, have said yes to the gospel. And we're commanded to preach a message that is audacious, exactly what people don't want to do, and yet preach that message nonetheless is exactly what we're called to do. And when we do so, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to operate in the hearts of our hearers, that they too might be believers. But the Pharisees will do anything to avoid believing in Jesus. They are already plotting to kill him, and they'll certainly charge him with being uh, a very ruler of the wicked spiritual world. Now, Jesus responds to the charge. Jesus is going to say he's not in league with the arch ruler of demons. And he's going to respond in three ways. Interesting, isn't that? They articulate their charge to him three times. And Jesus actually is going to offer three responses, but they're very unexpected responses. Well, maybe not the first one. 
The, the first response, uh, Jesus uh, actually uh, responds with something that is very logical. Let me go ahead and jump, and jump forward. The second response is something that is hypothetical. The third response is uh, something that is certain. Logical, hypothetical, certain. The first response of Jesus, very, very logical, verses 23 through 26. If the, if the rule of Beelzebul is so divided, it actually can't last. It's going to collapse. It's going to collapse any day now. If it is as, di- as divided as you say, if the house is so utterly mismanaged, it is going to fall of its own accord. But it isn't divided. It has continued on today, just as everyone knows. That's why the crowd is here. That kingdom has not been divided. Jesus says that if it is divided, it will collapse, but the kingdom is here. And so first, Jesus offers something that's very logical. And in many ways, Jesus can stop right there. The debate maybe isn't won, but it's certainly in Jesus' favor, favor, because the charges are illogical. But Jesus responds next with something hypothetical. It's almost as if Jesus asks his hearers to enter an imaginary world, verses 27 and 28. And it's, and it's a little offensive, but, but this is what Jesus does. Jesus says, look, now if you really want the house of Beelzebul to fall, what you really need to do is you need to make them homeless, don't you? I mean, if you really want the house of Beelzebul to fall, then what you really need to do is you need to remove that house from him. You need to remove all of his goods, his possessions. You need to remove all of his weapons, right? If you really want the house of Beelzebul to fall. And Jesus says, really, it's this easy, hypothetically, you just bind up the strong man. The word for strong man means the mightiest figure, the, the strongest, the most capable, the mightiest figure. Jesus says, look, if you incapacitate incapa- him, the job's done. One guy, take him. This is really Jesus saying, if you go for the jugular, then you've won. You see, if you go for the jugular, go for that highest captain, then you can thoroughly plunder his goods. That's what he says in verse 27. Not just plunder, but thoroughly plunder his goods. And Jesus says it twice. You can thoroughly plunder his house. But you bind up that guy, you can take your own sweet time. Walk in and out of that house, pull out the furniture, You pull out all of his goods, even his human goods. You can take everything bit by bit by bit. And then what's he left with? Nothing. He has no followers. He has no uh, goods. He has no weaponry. He may as well not even have a house. Now, why do you think Jesus says, says this? You see, the arch ruler of all the demons is not the kind of figure that is going to give up. And Jesus doesn't think for a moment that uh, Satan is going to just uh, give up and be done. Satan actually, according to Jesus, needs to be forcibly taken down, stripped of his goods, stripped of his home, stripped of his household. And what's really interesting is when Jesus says that, what he's saying to the Pharisees is, well, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? It's so simple, isn't it? Bind up the one guy and everything's over. 
And so Jesus, he offers something uh, uh, logical, and I think the case is one, but then he offers something hypothetical. He takes our, our minds and our hearts in a slightly different direction, and then he offers something certain, 28 and 29. Look what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, when you read that in the Bible, take note. The word for truly is our word for amen. And it's the first time that it appears in Mark's gospel. We're going to see it again. And Jesus says, stop everything. Truly I say to you this. If the arch ruler's house is plundered, then a sin can be forgiven, even a sin of blasphemy. You see, the word for sin that he uses in 28 and 29, it actually refers to an action. It's not sin in general, the umbrella of sin. It's an actual action. Jesus is saying your individual sins can be forgiven. If that house is is, uh, plundered, your sins can be forgiven. Uh, The blasphemy, by the way, you you know, it's the opposite of worship. It's not praise, it's slander. Uh, Blasphemy is uh, saying that uh, everything that God says about himself is actually a lie, and everything that God does is actually evil. But what Jesus is really saying here is he's saying this. He's saying that because he has forgiven the sin of a blasphemer who blasphemes, Verse 28, the word utter, T's, not D's, U-T-T-E-R. In verse 28, the word for utter isn't there. What it literally says is that there's such a thing as a person who is a blasphemer who blasphemes. But Jesus is saying that because he has forgiven the sin of that man, the blasphemer who blasphemes, well, it means that the mightiest has been bound and that his goods have been plundered and that he's now homeless. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying that because he has offered forgiveness of sin, because he does have the power to forgive sin, even that of a blasphemer who blasphemes, he has actually bound up the strong man already. His goods have already been plundered, and he's now homeless. Forgiving sins, removing the power of sin... Well, that happens because Jesus is God's own Son sent to do exactly that. And so forgiving sins is removing the power of sin to turn you over to the arch ruler. Forgiving sins is binding the arch ruler. Forgiving sins is ransacking his house, even gloating over it. So when we ask this question, who or what is Jesus against? Let's ask it the second time. Because many are going to read this passage and say, well, Jesus, he's not in league with Satan. He binds Satan. So there you go. Who or what is Jesus against? Jesus is against Satan. But that's not actually what the passage is telling us here. It's true, Jesus is opposed to Satan. But Jesus in this passage, he's not against Satan, he's against sin. Ever since the fall, Satan has told humankind, you have broken the covenant of works. God, he promised you eternal life. You rebelled, and now there is nothing but spiritual death for you. He's far from you, and you will never belong to him. Adam sinned, and Adam actually capsized all of us. And the evil one reminds us of that message. John Calvin says this, He says, those of you who refuse to come to Jesus Christ and trust him for salvation, your life is going to be lived on two paths. 
Perhaps you're going to start on one path and end on another. But one of those paths is the path of overwhelming arrogance. You live your life thinking that God needs to love you, ought to love you. You live your life thinking that God is unworthy of your consideration, that God has nothing to do with you. And if he does, then he loves everything that you're doing. That's a life of overwhelming arrogance. The alternative, John Calvin says, is a life of overwhelming insecurity and depression. You know very well in your heart of hearts that something's not right with the world and something's not right with you. Try as hard as you might for peace, lasting peace. It never lasts long enough. And you know that something is broken out there and something is broken inside of you. You know that. Well, Satan, he reminds you of that. Adam sinned, and in Adam's sin, he capsized all of us. And what Jesus says is, Jesus says, I actually have the power to forgive sins. I have come to ransom my life to redeem yours. You're wrong to think that you deserve God's presence and approval. That's arrogance. And you're wrong to think that there is no way back. Well, that's just insecurity and depression. Jesus, he's ransacked the house. Satan's weaponry has been dragged out onto the front lawn. He can use them no more. And by removing sin's power, Jesus, he rewinds us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and he restores the fellowship that was lost. The covenant of works was broken by Adam. One man's sin capsized all of us so that we will only live in either pride or depression. But the second Adam, he deals with that sin. And now, one man's righteousness actually saves us all. And this atoning power, it binds, it ties up that archdemon, and it plunders his goods, including his hold on us of guilt and shame and condemnation. An archdemon, though, with no power to do that, with no weaponry of guilt, shame, and condemnation, that archdemon is a cartoon, a toy. Jesus came to deal with our sin and he ransacks the house of the archdemon that he might save us. So who's Jesus for? He's for all those who believe in him. But what he says in this passage is he says that he is not for those who refuse to believe. And Jesus uses a unique language to describe those who refuse to believe in him. He says these are those, in verse 29, who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus' public ministry has been authorized, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, come to him from God. At his own baptism, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Luke says that Jesus Christ is full of the Holy Spirit, not just in his actions, but in his actual authority. He is the one who has the power to baptize us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is really a judgment against Jesus. He's not the one who, he's, who says... He's not the one who says that he is, has the power to save. He's not who he says he is. He has no authority with God. He's not empowered to save at all. Well, that's the sin of unbelief. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is unforgivable for all eternity. But you know, from our vantage point, we can't really recognize that, can we? We only know if it's unforgivable if the person pers persists in their unbelief all the way up to their very last breath. 
But can I offer a quick encouragement? Nowhere in the Bible can we find a person asking for forgiveness and not receiving it. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a person asking for forgiveness of any sin and it not being granted. The the unforgivable quality of a, a sin against the Holy Spirit is a quality that's not realized until the very end of life. For some commentators, they say that Jesus here is issuing a stark warning to those religious leaders who say that they love God, but they refuse to trust in God's manner of salvation, using His Holy Spirit to work through the Son in the proclamation of the gospel. If you think, by the way, here this morning, that you have committed the unforgivable sin, can I just let you know that to think that shows that this is not you? To be mindful of that shows that this is not you. No one can speak authoritatively about that until at your very last breath in this present age you have refused to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the one who saves. But who is Jesus for? And if you look at verse 34, it seems as though Jesus is for those who sat around him. Here, he says, are my mother and my brothers. And these, it would seem, are his disciples. These are the kind of individuals who uh, we can learn about in verse 13. These are the ones whom Jesus calls to and the ones who come to him. These are the ones who do the will of God, which is to trust him in Jesus Christ. Matthew says, these are the ones who are with me and not against me. I mean, these are the ones who hear the good news. These are the ones who repent and believe. These are the ones who hear and trust. These are the individuals for whom every sin in their life is completely forgiven, even blasphemy against God. You see, Jesus, he's done something. He's disarmed the power of sin. So that power of sin to uh, fill us with pridefulness or to fill us with depression, that power is actually gone. Jesus has removed the weaponry of guilt and shame and condemnation. And so now, living lives full of arrogance because we we refuse to fall before Jesus, we can now live lives in humility, confessing our sins openly with a good conscience, knowing who we are. Because Jesus has disarmed that ruler, uh, we are no longer uh, subject to live lives that are full of depression, always grabbing for peace and never quite having it. We actually are people who can have peace in each and every circumstance. Why? He's disarmed Satan's weaponry. He's gone back in time and dealt with the fall of Adam and Eve. And he's offered his life for our life. And because he's done so, the evil one has no more weapons. This is the power of Jesus, and this is how the Bible talks about the forgiveness of sins. If you think the forgiveness of sins is, well, an issue not worthy of your attention, think again. Jesus has disarmed all rulers that he might save. Would you hear And would you believe? And would you join me in prayer? Father, we pray for those who do not know you in Christ Jesus. 
We pray that by your spirit, they would be made aware that they are running in pride or running in desperation. Your son is the only means for salvation. By your spirit, would you alert hearts to the offer of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.